My name is Nate Mickle. You're listening to Mickles and Dimes Layer 2, where every interview is dedicated to the simple, the practical, and the underappreciated. Mike North is a professor at New York University Stern School of Business, where he teaches leadership. Mike's research focuses on challenges of and considerations for the aging and multi-generational workforce. Mike was named a Best 40 Under 40 MBA Professor by Poets and Quants, a Top 50 Best Undergraduate Business School Professor by Poets and Quants, and a Rising Star by the Association for Psychological Science. He has authored op-eds for the Harvard Business Review, MIT Sloan Management Review, Newsweek, Quartz, and New Scientist, and his work has been featured in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, CNN, BBC, New Yorker, Washington Post, Forbes, and Time. Mike earned an undergraduate degree in psychology from Michigan, a PhD in psychology and social policy from Princeton, and completed a postdoc at Columbia. I hope you enjoyed learning from Mike North today, because I always do. Mike, it's so great to connect again. It's been a few years since we last met in that office right there at NYU, so it's great to connect again today. Great to see you, Nate. Thank you. Um, yes, you. last time I saw you was several years ago in this very office in the pre-COVID era, which feels, I guess it was actually about five years ago, but it feels like 10 or more somehow. So it is it is really good to see you again. Yeah, it feels like another life. Um, and speaking of life and aging and years gone by, uh, I know you, you spent a lot of time in that area. As you think back on your research, uh, what lessons of all the things you've learned would you most like to pass on to others? Yeah, thank you for asking. Um, so I guess I'll I'll answer that question. My two broad lessons stem from the two things I would be most known for, if I'm known for anything here at NYU, and I guess in the field more broadly, again, if I happen to be known for anything. One is, um, I guess the first of which is the classes I tend to teach here, which tend to cover leadership. Um, I'm one of uh, a handful of professors who tend to teach the core leadership classes, formerly to undergrads, now to MBA students. And I think one of the the biggest lesson, if my students take away nothing else from that, that I would love to impart is just that leaders can come from anywhere. Leadership, by extension, can also come from anywhere. Um, to borrow a phrase from Nate Pettit, who I believe, my colleague Nate Pettit, who you've had on as a guest in this podcast, um, I love the way he phrases it. He says, leadership is a behavior, not a position. In other words, it's not it, it's not a noun or a title that is bestowed upon you, though we tend to think about the leaders as those who have that label of leader slapped on them, but rather it's a set of actions or behaviors or verbs, if you will, that anyone in any position can enact, regardless of what kind of position that they hold. Um, and so to me, that's been a really powerful message, because if you reframe leadership in this way as a behavior rather than a position, all of a sudden anyone can lead. Uh, it's not just the so-called leaders. And to me, that's a very empowering message that um, I try to pass along not only to my students, not only to my two young kids, but if I'm being honest, also to myself. Yeah, do you have any experiences with that? Anything in your life where you've seen that maybe personally or in the lives of somebody else? Yeah, absolutely. So it, it actually stems from um, a, a great deal of feeling throughout my life. And, and I want to preface this by saying this is not 
you know, some sort of sob story, um, but yet just a genuine feeling I have had of being on the relatively quieter side. Um, naturally, I am an introvert. I'm quiet. I often feel, especially in this line of work where I'm supposed to be teaching MBA students or this sort of, you know, trying to offer some sort of insights for folks in the business world where the pace is fast and the voices tend to be louder sometimes. I do feel sometimes like a bit underestimated or overlooked or misunderstood. Again, it's not a, it's not a sob story. I've had, I've had a lot of good fortune in my life, but it is a genuine feeling where I, I used to feel like the so-called leaders got more attention. I, I would sit, for example, all my students know this contrary to what a lot of, I would say professors, at least what I would assume um, eventual professors are like as students you you stereotype them as sort of the students who sat in the front row and raised their hands a lot and had a lot of questions. I consider myself the opposite of that, where I sat in the very back row as far away as possible from the teacher, praying that I wouldn't get called on, terrified that I wouldn't get cold called. And my teachers would often say in my report cards, you know, Mike, he seems relatively smart, but he we wish I wish he would speak up more. And no matter how many times I was encouraged to do that, which was several. I never really could muster the courage to do that and really sort of make my voice heard. And nonetheless, I found myself thrust into positions outside the classroom where I either had to perform in front of an audience or motivate a team or an audience. And this kind of juxtaposition between being the shy, quiet kid afraid to speak up, but also someone forced into these positions where I had to exercise some degree of voice, which I know is something, Nate, that you study in your own research. That kind of sometimes paradox, I would say, defines not only my approach to leadership, but also my life in general. And so I'd say the encouraging thing is I have learned as someone who is naturally on the softer spoken side, I've learned that I, and by extension, I hope my students who are on the shire side also see this, you can still lead. Um, you can lead by example. That's a pretty um, popular one that people would be familiar with. You can lead by seeking to change the status quo, but in a way that feels comfortable to you. You can lead in your relationships by having, by um, taking the initiative to have a difficult conversation about a source of tension or conflict that you might be having, or uh, something that's been on your mind that normally you wouldn't want to speak up about, but that you decide to speak up about. So in general, I guess what I'm trying to say, Nate, is anyone can lead. You can be a vocal leader. You can be a quiet leader. It's not so much about giving a fiery speech and rallying the troops, although that certainly can be a part of the leadership equation. But there's this whole other flip side to leadership that more has to do with just demonstrating that you're willing to stake a position and you're willing to um, not necessarily go along with the crowd. You're willing to zag or maybe enact an unpopular course of action if you if it you truly believe that it is in the best interest of the group to do so. Yeah, this is interesting to me because I also teach leadership. And when I was in school, I also always sought out the back row. And if I go to a conference, I'm always looking for the back row. Uh, I'll see the, you. I'll see you back there. Yeah, then. That we'll sit by each other. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Um, there was this quote that I heard when I was a kid, something to the effect of it's, it's better to stay silent and let people think you're an idiot than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. And 
<laughs> I latched onto that too much. And uh, I was like so afraid to speak when I was younger. It's like, oh, I don't want people to think I'm dumb. And the older I get and more I teach, I really do encourage people like the Mikeys in the back, like, hey, it, it seems like you got a lot to say. Please share it. But I love this framing of leadership is a behavior. So as I teach leadership, the way I've done it recently is we spend the first couple of weeks on traits, like what traits are positively correlated with leadership. The rest of the class is all about what behaviors do you do? And, and the first part is even if, you know, what traits are correlated and how can you develop some of these traits and um, what are some of the benefits and drawbacks of the traits? But the vast majority of the class is what can you do as a leader? What behaviors should you enact to be an effective leader? Yeah, that's awesome. I'm glad to hear you're doing that. And and again, I know you had Nate on here as a guest before, so I won't steal his thunder. But one thing he has taught us and, and teaches his students that we also adopt is just, you can lead by listening also. <laughs> you yeah. can lead just by being the person who's willing to draw out what other folks have to say. That's a really powerful skill that in in our collective opinion, we don't really teach enough in in business schools. Um, but I think, yes, reframing it as a behavior that anyone can do, that really is the battle. And I think I think if I can add to that conversation in some way, we think of the behaviors that one needs to enact as speak up if you are afraid to do so. And that's that requires a lot of courage. And for folks like you and I, and, and it sounds like others, that is a huge challenge. And I will admit, I'm still not great at it. I'm still pretty quiet in faculty meetings. I'm still, again, I, again, I guess I'll see you in the back row at conferences. But um, but what I've learned to how to cope myself with this is I have learned to make sort of like quiet moves, if that makes any sense, that slowly but surely have me coming out of my shell. So this is a maybe kind of sounds silly and and not a huge deal but when i was in high school for instance when i was that kid sitting in the back row i wore the same outfit to school every day it was basically like a gray t-shirt and jeans i ate the same lunch every day um i was like afraid to even eat like anything besides pasta and tomato sauce which i, I tell my kids this because they're like way better eaters than i am and they're seven and four years old respectively they're better eaters than i was at age 18 were you the same way well i i wore a tie once for uh six months straight basically same tie every single day there you go so for so it sounds like you're we're not so different you and i nate but it, for me it sounds very silly but i decided it started in college and then it started um and it sort of progressed thereafter i decided to just try other things because I think I think it wasn't just about the t-shirt and jeans. It wasn't just about eating the same food. For me, I had this genuine like concern about what others were gonna think of me if I deviated at all from a sort of very understated doing the same thing every single day. So in college, I started, it sounds ridiculous now and I don't do it anymore, but I, I started tying a bandana around my head in college, mainly to challenge myself to see, obviously everyone cares about what others how others see them. And I, I would be lying. Most of us would be lying if we said we don't care at all about what others think, but I was more just trying to challenge myself. What happens if I do sort of break the mold or push the boundaries of what I think is acceptable attire or acceptable way to present myself, see what happens. A couple people made some jokes the first couple of weeks I did it. And then what I learned is after that, no one said anything. I was just the kid that wears a bandana. And I, those kinds of behaviors, little by little, I've constantly tried to do in order to push myself. You're seeing I'm, I'm wearing like a green leather jacket right now. I get comments on that too. I at least, I used to wear, get comments on that as well. 
until now I realized that became the norm and pushing myself out in this way. Um, I, I realized that I can handle whatever comments people say, and now it just becomes a norm and realistically no one really cares anymore. So these are silly examples like bandanas and leather jackets, but they're not, to me, they're not silly in the sense that they are all part of the same theme of leadership being a set of actions that can be how as small as, hey, I'm not just going to wear a gray t-shirt and jeans today. I'm going to wear a bandana. And you build from that, you build that kind of courage in order to push yourself out of your comfort zone. Um, and, and to me, that really does underlie a great deal of what, um, what makes for leadership as a verb, not a position. I think that's really interesting too, because as a, when I would teach negotiation, I would encourage the students, you know, adopt different styles. Like if you're more the passive type, when you do a simulation, just be the aggressive type. If, if you don't like to anchor hard, just throw out the craziest anchor you can possibly think of just to experiment. And I love that you're doing this in your personal life with the bandana or the leather jacket. I love that too. In other words, it sounds like you're framing it as kind of like here, you, you're comfortable in this zone. You're comfortable in zone a, I want you to try zone B, but think of it as kind of a role play, try on this hat, see what happens. And who knows, maybe you turn into um, your comfort zone being zone A to now being equally comfortable in, in zone B. I, I love that. You're really pushing people to um, just try on a different hat, see what happens. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's what you, I'm doing. You get to be the person, the negotiator, the leader that ultimately you choose to be. Well, I love the lesson. And, and as you know, simple, practical, underappreciated is one of the themes. And so this the simple kind of practical, underappreciated uh, approach to challenge yourself is fantastic. Okay, any other lessons that you'd most like to pass on? Yeah, so the other lesson, which is also, in my opinion, simple, practical, and underappreciated, it has to do with my research. And again, if I happen to be known for anything, it's that I primarily study age or generational issues, um, specifically with a focus in management. After all, teaching at a business school and being a management professor, but I'm just curious in general about how age and generations, in my opinion, divide us needlessly, but also simultaneously, um, they, they should unite us, they divide us more than they do. It's also, in my opinion, a fascinating topic to study because age, in my opinion, is literally the only universal social category in the sense that all of its different identities and subgroups, presumably, is something that we all eventually join, provided we live long enough, right? You start out younger, yeah. eventually you're middle age, eventually you're older. Again, knock on wood, if we if we live long enough, that makes it different from other social categories, demographic categories that we typically think about. Where typically, if you're a member of one demographic, it's unlikely you're going to know exactly what it's like to be a member of another person of a different category than you. But age is different. It's a universal phenomenon. We're all on this universal track. And you would think that that would foster the greatest amount of perspective taking. In other words, literally every single person who's of a certain, let's say, older age, literally every single person of that certain older age literally knows what it's like to be younger. They literally have had firsthand experience that way. Literally every younger person may not know exactly what it's like to be of an older certain age, but everyone knows that you're on that track to eventually become that. Yeah. And so you would think age would provide this glue between people that really unites folks more than any other demographic category. But what my research has found and argues is that 
age in many ways is arguably the most socially condoned source of bias or prejudice or discrimination or just conflict in the workplace or in your family, right? It generation gaps, generational divides, um, younger crowds saying, okay, boomer, the sort of figurative eye roll toward the older generation for not understanding their own plight. Meanwhile, older generations derogating younger generation is saying, oh, kids these days, they don't know how to do X, Y, and Z. It's this, it's just all of that is simultaneously, it makes age and generation such a rich topic to not only study, but also just to really think about the actual real consequences in your workplaces, in your families, in your societies, that quite frankly, I don't think people think about this topic um, enough. And that's where my research comes in trying to get people to try to, at the very least, think more about this, the, these phenomena that they don't think about enough. What a fascinating framing that it's the only demographic category that is universal eventually if we all live long enough. One of my uh, favorite anecdotes related to age is uh, was in this book, Tuesdays with Maury, that you may have read by Mitch Albom. And at one point, um, you know, I forget exactly what happened, but uh, somebody younger is like complaining or, or saying they feel bad for Maury, you know, for him being older and, and dying. And he's like, don't feel bad for me. Like, I've already experienced what you have. <laughs> I've already been there. <laughs> like, yeah, I feel bad for you because only, you know, if you're lucky enough, you'll get to be as old as me. Uh, but I, uh, this is interesting because I was just thinking about this yesterday. So yesterday, my daughter says something, 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 low key, something, something, something. And I said, you know, say that again, but without the low key, because that doesn't mean anything. And she says, well, no, actually it does. And, and then she goes on to describe how, you know, using the phrase low key actually did contribute to what she was saying. And I felt bad afterwards for saying it. Like, I don't want to be the parent that's always telling their kids. Because I know when I was a kid, I liked hanging around the adults that just let me be me. Now, obviously, you don't, you know, it's like you don't want your kids to adopt every single trend or whatever and focus too much on being trendy. But just as I hear you talking, I'm thinking like, you know, that was just age. That was just me being older, telling the younger generation that, you know, they're doing it wrong. And uh, as, as you think about your research or what does your research show and like, how can we bridge this gap? Yeah, it's a great question. I love the anecdote that is, again, that's to me a universal experience. I mean, you don't even have to be a parent to have had that kind of interaction. Although if you are a parent, your kid is old enough, you, you certainly have. But my point is right. That kind of thing is happening in the workplace. In fact, if I can just offer a very quick digression, there are quotations attributed to philosophers from like dating back to like 800 BC that effectively boiled down to the older generation lamenting the ways of the younger generation, not, you know, being ill-mannered, being ill-tempered, being illiterate, you know, it just, it's so fascinating how much of a time-honored tradition it is for the older generation to dismiss the younger generation as sort of changing the way of life for the worse and the younger generation lamenting the older generation for not really getting out of the way fast enough. I mean, think about like King Lear in Shakespeare, or I don't know, th th there's probably other examples that, that I'm blanking on, but it's just this idea of the generational tension is something that has fascinated me. You know, I've been studying this for 15 years now. And again, it's the simultaneously universal thing 
that seems to underlie a lot of our interactions in the family, in the workplace, and so on and so forth. So you asked, how do we rectify it? And that that is really the million dollar question that I'm trying to de you know, dedicate my research to. I would say, well, I would say my research has found, has at its broadest sense, tried to clarify some degree of misperception in this domain. Um, in other words, try to clarify some misguided assumptions folks have that when you really deep dive into age or into generation, oftentimes what we think is true is not. And I would say most broadly, this kind of clarifying misconceptions that have to do with age is a key ingredient to rectifying these kinds of tensions, just like you're, you kind of um, had this interaction with, with your daughter and, and trying to think about ways in which um, you might bridge the gap. So one misconception that I've tried to clarify that I think can help bring generations together is that historically, when we talk about age and specifically age discrimination or ageism, people tend to think about it as an older adult issue. Um, I've had some research with my former PhD student, Stefan Francioli, who's now a postdoc at Wharton, where we have shed light on how there are certain age biases that target today's younger generation um, to the point where we actually argue that in some cases it is possible you can make the argument that ageism is a worse problem for today's younger generation than today's older generation. Not to say it's not a problem for today's older generation. It's more that people seem to see today's younger generation as particularly lacking or particularly um, entitled and um, uh, uh, deserving of whatever plate they have, be it, you know, not being able to buy a house, not being able to afford college and so on and so forth, that I think is a very slippery slope for an increasingly multi-generational um, society. We have some data basically showing that if you ask a representative sample of thousands of U United States representative participants, and you just ask them to rate on a feelings thermometer, that is how positively or negatively do you feel about this group? People actually view people in their 80s and 90s the most positively, and people actually view those in their 20s and 30s the most negatively. We also find that when we ask people, how do you think today's younger generation compares to younger generations of decades past? People by far rate today's younger generation as way, way less positively than they do younger generation. You know, in other words, boomers, when they were younger, seen as better than today's younger generation. And this effect holds even controlling for age. Even younger folks themselves basically look at their own generation and they're like, yeah, we kind of suck, which I think is really, really unfortunate. Um, so that'd be one answer to how do we rectify these generational tensions. One thing is just to understand that people of all ages are at risk for a certain amount of bias, let's say, or a certain amount of negative attitudes. Um, I can go on unless you wanted to jump in. Well, yeah, let me share one thing and I'd love to hear more. So this just reminds me of a, a speech I heard by Admiral McRaven. Um, he was the military leader that oversaw the raid on Osama bin Laden's compound. Mm -hmm. And he, uh, somebody asked him a question. They said something about, you know, like, what do you think about the youth today and how they're so entitled? And, you know, and he says, this generation is amazing because they think they can do anything. And, you know, when we were kids, like, we knew we were going to do one job and we were going to do that job forever. And uh, yeah, kids want to be influencers and they they think they can become whatever they want. And 
it, it was just a good reminder to me that, yeah, sure, there are there may be some drawbacks to the way current society is and the way some demographics behave, but there's certainly a lot of benefits as well. So that's a little bit of a tangent. I'd love to hear more of how we bridge this gap. Yeah, well, I guess another one, and I tell all my students this because, you know, they're they tend to be a little bit on in, in their they tend to be in their 20s and 30s almost universally. And so it's not the most uplifting message to be like, hey, everyone hates your generation, including yourselves. You know, see you later. Have a you know, have a good day. Go be a leader. That's that doesn't tend to fly so well. So this is also from a different um paper of mine, and this is in collaboration with Ting Zhang, who's a professor at Harvard Business School. And we were curious about where, about sources of good advice. So I, I mentioned earlier how good leadership can come from anywhere. The broad take home of this paper is that good advice can come from anywhere. And where I'm going with this is we tend to have this perception that one is, um, advice is best generated for someone usually older and more experienced than you, or else maybe the same age as you. In other words, the way that um, advice researchers, which I don't claim to be, tend to phrase it, is there are three different advice-giving relationships based on age. There's the traditional advice-giving relationship where an older advisor is advising someone younger. There's a peer relationship where people are the same age, one is advising the other. And then there's what's called a reverse advice-giving relationship, where you might have heard of the phrase reverse mentoring, for instance. It's the same idea where it's someone younger advising someone older than you. If you, if I were to ask you, Nate, and you can think about this yourself, or your audience can think about this yourself, in which of these three advice-giving relationships do you think you'd be most confident to be the advisor? Chances are, if you're like most people or most of our participants, you'd say, yeah, I'm reasonably confident advising someone, let's say, 10 years younger than me. That's that traditional relationship. Probably equally confident, more or less, advising someone about the same age as you. That's that peer relationship probably way less confident advising someone older than you. That's that reverse relationship, right? There's something awkward about it. We tend to think we don't know enough in order to advise someone older than us, or who am I to offer advice to someone yeah. who's older and more experienced than me, right? Well, what, as it turns out, we decided to collect data on this. We, we collected data with MBA students. We collected data with representative US samples, lab samples, such and so on and so forth. We asked people with no strings attached, if you could give a piece of advice to someone X years old, what would you tell them? Now that X varied between different participants. For some people, as you can probably um, guess where I'm going with this, some people were in the condition where they were asked to generate a piece of advice to someone younger than them. That's that traditional relationship. With some people, it was someone the same age as them. With other people, it was the someone older than them. We then asked a separate, separate sets of participants to rate the quality of the pieces of advice generated in that first study I just mentioned. Now, if you think about it, we it, let's say you're you know 30 years old and you're in the traditional condition. So you would have been asked to give a piece of advice to someone, let's say 20 years old, 10 years younger. We would actually recruit participants who are 20 years old and ask them to rate how high quality that piece of advice was. In other words, we had people rating the pieces of advice that were generated, but the advice that they were rating was matched to the age of the rater, such that it made sense. If you're 35 years old, you were rating the quality of advice ostensibly given to someone who's 35 years old. What that bit, what we basically find is the quality of advice generated in those three different advice giving relationships as rated by actual people ostensibly who would be the advice recipients yes. did not differ by those three different conditions. In other words, the quality of advice generated by 
advising someone older than you was rated as no less useful than the quality of advice in those more traditional or peer-generated relationships. I think that's a really empowering finding. In other words, you may be younger than someone. You may be the kind of person who's launching into a leadership position where you're expected to supervise folks who are older than you. That's increasingly common in today's economy. What did I tell all my students is don't tell you, don't sell yourself short. You have so much more to offer than you think you do. Again, even if you're not in that formal leadership position, right? Just because someone is older than you doesn't mean that you don't have as much to advise them. And I, I always add this. I sometimes present this finding and people think, oh, well, that makes sense because in my company, we have all the young interns advise us on like TikTok or the latest apps and whatnot. And to that, I say, cool, that's great. But um, we didn't limit the domain of advice. And actually, we found no difference regardless of the domain of the advice. It could have been giving romantic advice. It could have been giving general life advice. It didn't matter. It wasn't just about the younger generation knowing more about the apps and stuff. There really is value to be had from folks of any age, basically. And and there are reasons for this, right? Like, as you get older, I think we're about the same age, Nate. I don't know if you want to out how old you are, but I'll, I'll out myself as being, I'm almost 40. And it is interesting teaching students who are in their mid-20s, because on the one hand, I'm supposed to be the professor imparting some sort of wisdom on them. But what they don't always know is they're doing the same for me in a different way. They're helping me remember what it's like to be 25, which like, you kind of forget, right? And that yeah. that underlies the generation gap as well. We're so quick once we pass through these different life phases and life stages, it's it's hard to remember what it's like to be that version of yourself 10 or 20 years ago. They can Younger folks can serve as a helpful reminder of that. And as a result, the quality of advice that they give, I suspect that that's part of what underlies the quality of advice that they are giving being so surprisingly uh, effective. So just a couple of things that made me think of Peter Atia uh, well-known, uh, doctor, podcaster, and, uh, he was basically destroying himself because he was, he was not kind to himself. Anytime he would mess up, he would just like attack himself and, uh, just like verbally abuse himself in his head. And so one of the ways that he was able to overcome that was he was supposed to every, anytime he heard this voice, try to criticize himself, he would have to um, imagine that his friend had just made the same mistake. And then what advice would you give your friend? And the advice that he would give is like, hey, don't worry. You know, you messed up. Like you had a bad day. Like, don't worry about it. So it's interesting how the advice we give to others can be even better than the advice or, or the behaviors that we enact ourselves. Uh, but another thing that I think this is a really interesting study, and I've, I've not heard this result, and I love it. And I'm going to share this with my students. Um, it's easy as I'm older to get arrogant and think like, like kind of building off what Maury said, uh, but in a more arrogant way of like, I've already been there. Like you haven't been here. So I know, but what this got me thinking is, yeah, sure. I have been 25, but I've never been 25 in the year 2023. And that changes everything. So I should be more humble. And the students who are 25, like, yeah, they're helping me remember what it was like to be 25 because there is an element of being 25 that's universal. Uh, but they're also helping me learn what it's like to be 25 in 2023. 100%. And you actually touched on my third misconception, if I can add it, unless we're out of time. Do, and you no, let's do it. I, would, well, I mean, this cool. is, I'm, I'm taking more time than I asked for, but I would love for you okay. to share if you have the time. No. Of course, it's just it's one other thing that that I'm um, sort of a misconception of sorts that I'm seeking to clarify in this age and generational domain, 
which is sort of ironic because I'm guilty of this too, but it's, we focus way too much on our and others chronological age. In other words, it's really easy to slap a numerical age on someone and be like, okay, I know what this person's about because they're X number of years old. And we do this to ourselves. We do this to our family members. We're all guilty of it. It's something that we always have when we're filling out any, you know, any medical form, anything like it's, it's, you're forced to think of yourself in these terms. What I have tried to argue in some of my research is that chronological age, and I'm not the only one who feels this way, is actually a very limited predictor of much of what we think it would predict. Um, Becca Levy, this is not my own work. Becca Levy, for instance, is a public health professor at Yale University. And that may not be a name you you know, because she's not in our management scholarly um, field. She's more in the health world. She has all this groundbreaking research showing, for instance, that chronologically older folks, she can predict um, significant health outcomes, uh, their cardiovascular health, their mortality rates, based on how positively they view their own aging process. In other words, there's a great deal of malleability when it comes to one's chronological age that we constantly, constantly underestimate. And so my argument is more that given that, what are some alternate ways that we can think about age, so to speak, especially in a work context? And the latest thing I've come up with, it's called GATE. Uh, that's an acronym, G-A-T-E. My argument is that rather, rather than thinking about workers in terms of their age, we should be thinking about them in terms of their GATE. And this is relevant to what you said before, which is you we've both been 25, but we don't know what it's like to be 25 now. We don't know, or put another way, we know what it's like to be 25. We'd probably both fall into the either older, I, I would be an older millennial. I think you're, we're yeah. around the same, yeah. same age. We don't know I'm what it's just, like to be 25. I'm, I'm 42, you know, I, I just want to share, you shared. So I just need to put that <laughs> okay. out. I am 42. Thank you for, for, you know, finally uh, publicly <laughs> revealing that to, for your audience. No, but yeah, so it's, um, we don't know, we were 25 during a certain age of the so-called either millennial or young Gen Z, whatever generation was 25. We don't quite know what it's like to be a 25-year-old Gen Zer. And that's kind of along the lines of my argument, which is GATE is an acronym that stands for Generation, Age, Tenure, and Experience, whereby rather than focusing so much on on workers based on their chronological age, we should be thinking about them in terms of all these different intertwined components that are sort of proxies for age, but they're different from one another. So for instance, let's say you wanted to, let's say there's a, you know, 58 year old worker A and a 58 year old worker B, you know, and, and they're both applying for the same job, let's say, you know, maybe worker A who's 58 identifies as a, you know, young boomer, they're at a certain age or life stage where they're reasonably healthy, maybe they have certain um, family obligations that they're that's on their mind, they have a certain amount of tenure with their organization, maybe they've been at the same company for 30 years. And they have a certain amount of experience where they've accumulated a certain skill set, working professionally in the same kind of line of work for let's say 30 years, that's vastly different from a 58-year-old worker who's the exact same chronological age, but one who identifies more as a Gen Xer, who maybe has had health issues or maybe has never had children, so they haven't, there's certain life stage, you know, benchmarks that they haven't reached. Uh, maybe they have switched jobs every few years, so they don't have a lot of organizational tenure with their organization. 
and maybe they've switched and been in different kinds of industries so that maybe they have a lot of work experience, but in terms of the actual skills that they're picking up, they're constantly learning and they're constantly trying to, you know, evolve in that way. My point is not that one worker is better than the other. My point is to just say, well, these are two 58 year old workers. We should treat them exactly the same is limited. And it's, it explains, at least helps explain why chronological age is such a limited barometer when it comes to predicting certain things. For instance, if there's this paradox where older workers in the workplace are simultaneously highly valued. If you ask most managers who are your most reliable conscientious employees, they'll, they'll talk about their older guard, the folks who have been around a lot where they really value their experience. They value their professionalism, their level-headedness. But at the same time, you are statistically way more at risk for age discrimination, the older you get. And that seems like a, a paradox worth resolving that, Gate doesn't necessarily solve all those issues, but the broad point that simply slapping a chronological age on someone means you automatically know everything they're all about, I think is a is a limited proposition. Yeah, really interesting to think of to to even put that modifier in front of age, chronological age, which just captures this idea so nicely that age is so much more than just chronological like you're saying, generational tenure experience, all these different ways that we can think about age and how that can help us appreciate the differences between people rather than just kind of thinking of every 58-year-old as the same. Exactly. I think, and you know, I know you're, you're a fellow football fan and former player. It's hard not to think of like Tom Brady as a good example or what Aaron Rodgers maybe would have been if his, if his Achilles had held up versus maybe some other quarterbacks who are also in their late 30s who fell off the cliff way sooner. I mean, that alone just shows the malleability and the variance that happens even at the highest level of professional sports, right? So there's so many examples of this that I'm sure most folks can think about in their own lives too. Well, Mike, this is great. You you take a, a topic like age, which, you know, if I'm a if I'm tuning into a podcast and I hear they're going to talk about age, I'm right away you know skeptical that I'm going to want to listen. But you approach this from such an interesting perspective that uh, when we had our conversation years ago and, and you were talking to me about your research and as I read about your research, I just thought this was so fascinating, which is why I wanted to have you on. And I hoped, you know, I, I don't tell people what to talk about, but I hoped you would talk about your research with age because it is so interesting. Uh, you've encouraged me to uh, expand the, the topics that I research. And, and so I told you this before, but, uh, you know, I was researching AI. Well, now, like, everybody's kind of researching AI. Uh, so this isn't out there. But, you know, five years ago, this it, it felt a little novel, and and you inspired me and motivated me. And uh, anyway, I just, I love the lessons you shared. I look, I look forward to trying to apply these in my own life, sharing these with my students, and of course, listeners. So thanks so much for taking your time to share these lessons with me today. Yeah, thanks, Nate. Thank you so much for having me on. It's great. And and thank you for taking an interest. And um, yeah, you're not the only one who is skeptical about age and people equate it with aging. And that's maybe depressing for some folks. So maybe that's a broader take home is to not be afraid of it. It's okay. You know, you're, everyone is of a certain age and you might as well embrace that and try to understand it. So anyway, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to um, reconnect and share that with you. And you know, hit me up if you ever decide to study this yourself. Thanks for listening to this episode of Mickles and Dimes. What interesting, timeless lessons Mike shared today. First, leaders can come from anywhere because leadership is a behavior, not a position, a verb, not a noun. We can lead by example, by challenging the status quo, by having difficult conversations, or by listening to others. 
Ultimately, we get to decide what kind of leader we want to be, in the same way that Mike chose to wear a bandana around his head and a green leather jacket to work. Second, age unnecessarily divides us in many ways, especially given that age is the only universal social category. We will all join each of its identities and subgroups if we live long enough. But rather than glue us together, age often divides us, whether it's younger people saying, okay, boomer, or older people lamenting kids these days. But this is not a new phenomena. There are similar quotes dating back to 800 BC. And even though both young and old are discriminated against, sadly, it's young people who tend to be viewed most negatively, both from older and younger generations alike. One way Mike's research addresses this gap is through advice giving, in which he finds that the advice given by young people is equally as good as the advice given by old people. Just as leadership can come from anywhere, so too can good advice. Finally, we probably focus too much on chronological age. To better appreciate people, we can view them through other age lenses, such as generation, tenure, and experience. In summary, we can all lead and appreciate each other more, regardless of our age. It's a simple idea. Please take it seriously. Nate Mickle here with three requests and one suggestion. First, if you would like a quick summary of these lessons delivered to your inbox, sign up for Nate's Notes at natemickle.com. Second, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others. Third, if you'd give this podcast a five-star review on Apple iTunes, I would really appreciate it. And now a suggestion. If you're like me and want to remember all of the lessons shared in previous episodes, visit the list of lessons page on my website, natemickle.com, to see all of the lessons that each previous guest has shared. Thanks for your support.